from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Daniel. Today's show has two great authors, singer-songwriter and book author Judy Collins, and recent Herbert House guest author Tatiana Sol. Judy Collins will be in town on December 5th, and more information is available at www.kappa.com. Judy Collins has stunned audiences since her 1961 debut. She's been nominated for six Grammys and won two. She's released 43 albums, along with an Academy Award-nominated film, Antonia, A Portrait of a Woman, and five books, Morning, Noon, and Night, Singing Lessons, Trust Your Heart, The Novel Shameless, and her most recent book, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, My Life in Music. Tell me about uh, when you come to Columbus, what will you be performing for Kappa? Well, I have, of course, a new CD out called Bohemian, and on it I, I have a number of songs that I've written. Some of those probably will be in the show. I also have a few of the songs that kind of refer to the 60s and my new book, which is called Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, which came out a month ago, which is uh, my life in music. So I think that that resonates past present and future and of course we'll be singing some of the hits like both sides now and someday soon okay so tell me about some of the songs that you've uh, recently written on this new album what are some of the ones that really stood out to you as moments when you were writing that it was really satisfying for you as a writer or something that was really um difficult for example to write they're all satisfying and they're all difficult it's it's like uh, Arlo Guthrie says, you know, songwriting is like fishing. You sit there with your line in the water and you, you wait till you get a bite and you pull in the fish and you, you hope it is, it is big enough not to have to throw back. And then, as he says, along comes a fish by Dylan and we hope that he'll throw his back. <laughs> <laughs> They're all hard. They're all satisfying. Once in a while, you know, I think the average is a pro- probably about one in a hundred that really get through the cracks. Now, I've got five of my songs on this album. I'll tell you about them. The first one is called Morocco, and who knows where it came from. I think maybe, I don't know, somebody's muse was on holiday and came over to visit me because it's very unlike anything I've ever written. I have uh, a group called Olabel backing me up. The first line of the song I... I I dreamed. It says, uh, I dreamed that I saw you once down in Morocco. Your clothes were so old, they were new. And uh, it turned into a song. The uh, the song about Big Sur was there for years, too. Um, I know this stretch of road. I've been here often. Uh, the ocean rolls as far as you can see. Well, those are lines that come up, and then you get home, and you sit down in the privacy of your uh, of your writing room when when God has given you a little bit of a break from your touring and you get to sit down and write a song and, and by golly, it comes out a song. And then, of course, tragedy always, in my case, and I think in most cases, stimulates various kinds of creativity because you've got to do something. I mean, you can't, you cannot kind of close the door on your life. So, Creativity comes up to save your neck, really. And I have found that that's always true. Life is hard anyway, but I find that particularly in difficult times, I seem to be 
um, more willing or more able or somehow given the strength to do more creative writing. And um, when things are tough, I seem to get going. You know, they, they say that about, uh, about people. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I think that's sort of the way I was trained. So a couple of the songs about loss, which are on this, this album, have been extremely important for my own mental health and, I think, physical recovery. Uh, one of them is about my son. It's, it's called Wings of Angels, which I wrote after his death and never really recorded properly. So I gave it a full treatment here so that people could hear it the way I intended it to be heard. There is also then my mother died last year at 94. And, she, you know, she was an amazing woman. I was very, very close to her. If we weren't together physically, if I wasn't in Denver, then we were talking on the phone a couple times a week. In fact, this is the first uh, Thanksgiving that's gone by in decades when I haven't had to call her and say, how many minutes on the turkey uh, <laughs> per pound? Anyway, she died in d- December last year. And the song that I wrote about her called In the Twilight is perhaps, I'm finding it as I'm singing it now in concerts, a most evocative song because so many of us are I think any time you're probably over 35, you get into a position where one of your parents or sometimes both of them are going or gone. And so there we are to deal with the issue of loss and becoming orphans. You know, I mean, it's for an adult to become an orphan, I think, is maybe harder than younger people. And so that song has been very powerful and very meaningful to me. Now. When you are talking about these songs, I hear a lot in your voice about the uh, what, how much they mean to you. And I'm curious about when you're with other songwriters, which of your songs do you say, you know, this is the one that really makes it for me as a songwriter? What's the song that you bring up as an example of you as a songwriter most frequently to other songwriters? If I were in a song, singer-songwriter group today... All of these songs would be played for... I'm not in one of those creative groups anymore. I used to be. And in the mm-hmm. 70s, I had a sort of a multi-media uh, multi, um, uh, group in which I we all either read our books or we, wrote, we sang our songs or we exhibited our paintings. That's a very good thing to do. And in your 30s, I think it's extremely helpful. By the time I got into my 40s, my writing had taken its own curve and its own direction. And quite frankly, as the, as the touring has really taken hold of my life, the writing has gone along with it. But I have to be extremely disciplined to do it. It's just harder, that's all. But I would bring up a number of songs. I would go through, of course, my first song, which was Since You've Asked, which, of course, has been a tremendously important song. My father, which I'm proud to say was recorded by no less than Nina Simone. I'm very proud of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Dan Fogelberg recorded Since You've Asked, my very first song. My writing has taken great leaps and bounds since I was able to start writing prose. In the most recent songs, I would say The Blizzard is a very big song for me, and it came after I started to write my first major memoir in 1987. The Blizzard is a kind of a, I don't know, life-changing song for me. People ask for it. They look for it. They, if I sing it, they're very happy to hear it. 
And for other songwriters, that's a song that I would sing for Ricky Ian Jones, for instance, or for Jimmy Webb. I mean, Jimmy Webb loves the blizzard. He also loves a song I wrote called The Fallow Way, which he recorded on my on my uh, album of other artists singing my songs, which includes which includes The Fallow Way and Since You've Asked and Born to the Breed, and uh, a, particularly a song called... Um, Secret Gardens, which was recorded by by Sean Colvin. Secret Garden Gardens is another uh, one of those again watershed songs, which I wrote in the mid mid seventies. Secret Gardens and probably Born to the Breed. And of this mo- more recent batch of songs, uh, one or two of which I haven't properly recorded. I've put them on uh, on concerts, live concerts, but I haven't done proper versions. For instance, Beyond the Sky, which I was commissioned to write by NASA, is about the flight, the solo flight of Eileen Collins, who, who captained the, um, the uh, a flight to which carried Chandra, a huge, huge telescope into space. And she was the first woman to command a spaceship. So Beyond the Sky is sort of my salute to women in the, in the space program. There's also a song called Walls, which I wrote when my husband designed and uh, uh, has been the, the, what do they call him, the the muralist of the uh, Korean War Memorial on the Mall in Washington, D.C. Walls I did on a big big concert at uh, Wolf Trap some years ago, but it hasn't been recorded, I say, properly. I'll probably make a proper studio recording of it quite soon. And, of course, in these last few, three or four years, the song about 9-11 called Kingdom Come is one I would, I would, would um, not be um, embarrassed to bring out to show at a songwriter, singer-songwriter circle. And these last three or four, maybe four songs on this album, I think probably live up to a good standard that, that has been developing over a course of 40 years of songwriting and also probably being influenced by very fine songwriters around me. It always helps. You know, they say you have to be surround yourself with, with good work to be able to do good work. Uh, having said that, I would say, and I haven't sent this song to Pete Seeger yet, but I will because I adore him and he listens carefully to, to new songs. The song about my mother called In the Twilight I would say it's probably the best thing I've ever written. Now, of course, loss, as I say, is is a, a, a tremendous instigator for bringing out the best that you've got. You know, I mean, she may not hear this song in on this planet, but I'm sure that somewhere she'll be aware of it. And uh, so I'm so perhaps feel best about that song, worst and best, if you understand what I mean. Having to write it right. is not best possible situation, but having written it is not bad. Okay. I read a quote attributed to you online, so I'm I'm not entirely sure that you said this, but you can tell me. And it goes something like this. I don't think you get to good writing unless you expose yourself and your feelings. Deep songs don't come from the surface. They come from the deep down. Now, how do you you access your deep down? How do you get there? You know, um, in the case of the song Morocco, uh, 
that dream, often, often I'll have a dream which will stimulate something, and I do try to remember my dreams. I don't have as much memory of dreams as I used to because I, I, I have always had excellent dream memory. I wake up and the th- thing is all there, but I don't always have time to write it down. Uh, when I do, I always find there's something that's triggering it, and it could be a full line like that one, you know. Um, I dreamed that I saw you once down in Morocco. And Olabel's voices to that song are just in, incredibly powerful. I don't know that there's any way to do it except to sit still and wait for it to come out. Now, with the song about my mother, the last time I saw my mother in Denver um, at the beautiful place where she was living for a year and a half after we had to move my mother and stepfather out of their house because she was having strokes and taking falls and neither one of them could hear anything anymore. So they were in a very dangerous situation. And like most people of that age, 93 she was then, um, accepting help is one of the real problems with, with the with seniors. They don't want to help. help accept help. They don't want to stop driving. They don't want to get anybody in to make sure they're okay. They don't want to use a um, a senior alert system. They really want to do it on their own. I totally understand that. And when she finally did get into the senior, uh, the memory unit she was on because she was losing her memory, I was visiting her just really a few days before she died. And uh, she was asleep and the one of the people who took care of her wonderful gal named Kate there at Park Place said to me, you know, your mother is a real lady. And, of course, she was. She was amazing. You know, she lived almost 10 decades and and had class and had five kids and had a sense of humor and read books and went to the theater and uh, needle pointed and, and was involved with her community and was extremely political in her views and, and a liberal straight down to the heart, you know. And as I left, I thought of the first line of this song, which is, um, she's a lady uh, and she's sleeping. She's a lady and she's... Uh, and she barely knows my name now in the twilight as she sleeps. Now, that's the line I took away when she was still with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, a week later, she was gone. And then by the time the mor- memorial came in January, I had written the full song. So, as I say, I think the resonance happens because of the age. That comes from deep down. There's no way to replicate being <laughs> being. <laughs> 50 uh, instead of 15 you know uh, you get the experience you get the time to figure some things out and you also get the time to write some things down okay this is the last question uh, because I know you're quite busy and uh, I'd like to know you've written several books uh, along with the songs and what is the experience or how is the experience of writing long form different from you than writing songs in a way, it's not different. In some ways, it's very similar. It takes solitude. It takes focus. It takes memory, all of which are resonant and important in songwriting. It takes tranquility. It takes uh, discipline. You carve out a couple of hours a day and say, this is what I'm doing and nothing else. Uh, the same thing occurs when you're getting down to the editing stage where then you can allow yourself the freedom of spending six to eight hours, at least I can, 
and I know that this is true for other writers. It, when you're working on repairs and editing and so on, it's a different sort of process. You've got the form down, you've got the bulk of the work down, and um, then you have a chance to refine, to reflect, to work with your editor if you have an editor. I don't have an editor on songs. The editor is my own mental capacity to figure out whether it's a whether it's going to be a keeper or whether we should just throw it into the hamper and use maybe one or two of the lines, which quite often happens. Well, that's true with writing posts, too. You, you, you know, I think I wrote 120,000 words in Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, my new book, which is the memoir that's out now, uh, with which I was, was uh, integrating and on which I was reflecting in the new CD, Bohemian. So there were 120,000 words, but by the time my editor and I finished, I think we were down to 95,000. So a lot of things are cut, but that's the same sort of process that goes on when you're writing songs because you've got, you've got to be willing to lo- lose what doesn't work, even if it sounds good on the page, even if it might be useful some other time. I think that I have in my computer most of my early edits of Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, and I know that there are big chunks there that may wind up in a book down the road somewhere, perhaps a book about fishing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Judy Collins, I thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, and we look forward to you being in Columbus with Kappa. You're welcome. Thank you so much. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. More information about Judy Collins can be found at www.writerstalk.org, along with information about our next guest, Tatiana Soli. I am joined by Tatiana Soli, who was born in Salzburg, Austria, and lived in Italy as a child before moving to the United States. She graduated from Stanford University and then Warren Wilson College with an MFA. Her writing has garnered a host of honors, including the 2010 James Tate Black Award for Fiction, a notable book for the American Library Association and the New York Times, as well as an LA Book Award finalist. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Tatiana Soli. Thank you, it's nice to be here. Well, you come to us today uh, as part of the Thurber House Mm -hmm. series, which we always recommend, and they bring in great authors such as you to read and to interact with people. So I hope people will go to that if they're able. But let's start with your background. Mm -hmm. Um, Since you've said that, quote, experiences uh, such as living abroad uh, have made you more open to people from other cultures and that this openness and this understanding is important for any writer. Tell me about those experiences. How have they impacted your writing? I think um, a lot of people ask, you know, why did I choose that subject matter? And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I grew up, I was born in Austria, and so my mom and I uh, came to the U.S. to become citizens when I was five. So we went back and forth for a while, and so I felt very, very comfortable in living in different countries. And I, th- I think it does make you more open to what somebody else is, especially the immigrant experience, which is an important part of what motivated the book. Um, just having that openness to other cultures and, and what it's like. And this was a little bit of a reversal because I'm actually having, you know, my the American character, Helen, go to Vietnam, and that becomes her home. But I think a lot of the the, the getting acclimated to another culture and becoming sympathetic and trying to understand it, I think that 
is an important theme of the book, and okay. so that was kind of open to me from an early age. Okay. Tell me about uh, then, uh, were you, when you came to the U.S. when you were five, um, was that then sort of a, was your native language English, or were you No, I actually, uh, we lived in southern Italy. My mom was an interpreter for NATO, so I spoke Italian. I went to a British school, and I was born in Austria, so I spoke, you know, the five-year-olds, three languages <laughs> at the five-year-olds level. Okay. Well, that's a great way to get into linguistics and language and open you up for writing, I suppose, if it doesn't drive you crazy, having so many languages running around in your, your head. Um, you're also well known for your short stories, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in addition. With that. So tell me, uh, you've been cited twice in the 100 Distinguished Stories and Best American Short Stories nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Uh, tell me about writing short stories. What got you into that? I think, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but when you're going through college, just the workshop experience, they really, you know, push that because it, it's a lot more efficient to try to workshop a short story because you, you have the beginning, middle, and end, and you can get through it, you know, with, you know, other students and all. So I think that was a, a, a natural, you know, progression becoming, I always say I'm really a reader and I became a writer because there's nothing else you can do when you love books so much. Well, hard, it's hard to get paid to read. <laughs> I wish, yeah. I wish there was that job. So I started out with short stories, but as I am a novel reader and, and I always had the comment that my short stories are really long and go off in different directions. So I think, mm -hmm. I think for me, probably the novel is a more natural form. I love short stories and I still write them, you know, kind of as, you know, different thought experiments. But uh, the, the novel, I was building to the novel always. Okay. Well, you say you wanted to always wanted to be a writer. Tell me about that. Why? What was there that attracted you to it? What was there that made you want to do that? It's kind of, I think, if you are a reader, and because of the the way I was living from different countries and everything, um, I'm from the old the, the the last generation of immigrants where my mom, when I came to the U.S., she wanted me to speak perfect English, so we didn't have the you know multi languages keep that up at all. So we just concentrated on English, and. Uh, I think because I, my language skills as a small child were a little bit behind, I really became a reader. That's how I really, you know, got into books, and and it stuck always. And so um, I think that was the reason. Okay. Well, tell me about uh, the Lotus Eaters. You've got three main characters that are followed throughout different stages of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and um, you said you were obsessed with the Vietnam War even as a child. That the topic chose you. Mm. Why did the conflict engage you so for this book? Um, when my mom was uh, offered citizenship, she was sponsored because uh, uh, she worked at NATO, you know, military family. And so we went to Fort Ord Military Base in Monterey, California. So we lived there for two years when I was a small child. I started school there. And uh, it was really formative. I, I just always had a, a lot of things that I didn't understand, things that had happened when I was a child, things that you observe. And, didn't understand what was going on. So when I grew up, I started reading all the Vietnam books, you know, like everyone else, all Tim O'Brien and seeing all the movies and everything because I just wanted to understand it. And of course, that's the war that nobody really understands that we don't come to an end to. And so I just, I had never thought about writing about it myself because all you would read about were, you know, the soldiers' accounts of it. And so I just kind of, you know, I wanted to understand and, and find out, you know, all of my mom's friends who were sent there, what that was all about. Mm -hmm. And so I think that started me on, on that trajectory. But um, I, when 
I think a little bit living in California, we have a huge Vietnamese immigrant population. And so reading and hearing their stories, you know, that coming to the U.S. after the war and, and they talked about, you know, what had happened to their country and, you know, how much they loved it and how what a beautiful place it was and how much they lost. I thought, you know, this is not at all what I've been reading for the last, what, you know, 10 years, you know, mm -hmm. since high school about Vietnam. And I thought this would be a really is it more it it adds a lot of meaning to know where we were fighting what our soldiers were sent for where they were sent to because a lot of them of course didn't know either they were just sent off you know not acculturated okay. well you know you when you talk about soldiers and and Tim O'Brien um, who's the author of the things they carried yes. um, he's also uh, gives you a blurb on the back of the book here um, a haunting war world of war, betrayal, courage, obsession, and love. So um, tell me about having read Tim O'Brien as a reader, you become a writer, and then you get something like this from him. Uh, have you met with him, talked yeah, to him about yeah. the Vietnam War? What was that experience like as a, uh, as a writer? Oh, he's my hero as a writer. I think he's a great writer. And I always tell everyone, you know, if they want to read the, the first book about Vietnam or understand the soldier's experience in any war, his books are where you start and end. <laughs> because, mm -hmm. I mean, his, his books are unlike the, the, a lot of the books that you read have a lot of the combat and all of that type of stuff. And he talks about the conscience of the soldier. And he says, you know, um, I was a coward. I went to Vietnam. And I, those are really harsh words back then, you know. Even mm -hmm. now, it, I, he he took a real strong stand and, and his just beautiful and important writing. So I, I went to him when I was in, you know, I can't remember which draft of this book because it took a long time to do. But I said, you know, I feel really strange coming to you with this book. And, and I feel guilty, too, because I feel this is your material. This isn't my material. I wasn't in the war. I don't really know if I have a right to be writing about this. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he kind of put me at rest. He said, if you have, if you think you have something important to say about it, if you have something that you, is, is a truth. He's, he's about story truth. He says it doesn't matter if you were there in person. All the books that you write, doesn't ha you don't have to have had that experience in order to write about it, which I do believe. Because, you know, some pe people think you only can write for, out of your own life. And I, I don't, I think it's whatever haunts you, whatever you really care about. Okay. And so it gave me permission to go forward. Right. I mean, I, I think one of his quotes is something along the lines of, um, it's it, when asked about the things that carried, it's all true except the lies or, or some joke yeah. sort of response like that. But it is about finding your way to write, giving yourself the right to be a writer. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I understand what you're going. When did you start calling yourself a writer? When did you decide that you were, say, you weren't a college student now, you were a writer? or um, and Because I know that the, you did some other things in between. Yeah. But when did that become part of your consciousness that I can call myself a writer now? Probably last year. <laughs> <laughs> I still am uncomfortable with it, but okay. uh, you know, and when, that was after the Pushcart Prize, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> it was way after, you know, because yeah. because if, if once you're outside of the university, people say, you know, what have you published? That's immediately the thing. And if you mm -hmm. haven't published a book, um, I think I tell my students because I teach. I say I tell my students, you're a writer as soon as you take it seriously, and that's what's important to you. But I think you also have to protect yourself. Um, when you're in the, the, the early stages that you don't mm -hmm. throw yourself out there and people make you not feel like a writer because you haven't published a book. Okay. I mean, there are great writers that only publish short stories, which is fine. And, and you are still a writer, obviously, even if you have, you know, okay. only in quarterlies. But uh, mm -hmm. I, I was shy about it because I didn't want to be questioned. Mm -hmm. Well, you also ran uh, an art publishing studio, right? 
Uh, with, uh, with my husband had your, one, so husband. I, I worked Okay, with him. so that puts you on sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, right? You're getting people bringing you um, either, is, was this manuscripts that books published about art? Or was it art? We itself? actually we actually did uh, uh, art graphics, so people would bring our painting, and we would do you know high end uh, multiples of that. Oh, okay, okay. So I just I helped him, so yeah, that was my day job. <laughs> but you still, um, you know, was that something where you would say, well, this makes sense for us to do, or or this one doesn't, where you're in a sort of choosing situation on it, or is it a, a commercial enterprise? Uh, well, it was kind of both, actually, because we published we published an artist from from Paris because my husband is an artist, mm -hmm. and so he published his own work, and then he would you know have other artists that he admires, and and we would publish theirs under our house. Because it, it, when I read that, I thought, well, this has got to be an interesting experience to be somebody who's sending off um, to an agent like you know sort of you would be at the same time, and and getting sort of both sides of that, right? Because you're functioning as an art publishing house, so you're making some decisions about thing having to. To talk to artists and say, well, this one we're not as interested in is maybe something else you've done. Yeah. And I was curious about how that being in those dual positions affected you as a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't, uh, my husband was in charge of it, so, okay. but, but I, I think I got a, a, a real strong visual education just being around him. He's much more visual and he, and he recognized his images and stuff. And obviously I'm, I'm into the language, but I think actually even in this book, um, a lot of it, the visual part and being able to hook into photographers and visuals, that was that experience of being in there. And that my art appreciation obviously is higher than it would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. Well, Tatiana Solia, thank you very much for being here on Writer's Talk. I really appreciate thank that. Thank you. More information about both Tatiana Soli and Judy Collins can be found on the Writer's Talk website at www.writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk comes to you from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. You can watch videos of select interviews at www.writerstalk.org and friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash writerstalk. Join us next time for Liz Longley in Columbus on December 9th with Six String Concerts and best-selling author Carla Neggers. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. Thank you.